You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a History of the Second World War podcast interview. This time, I'm joined by a a returning guest, Alexander Clifford, who's written a new book titled Hindenburg, Ludendorff, and Hitler, Germany's Generals and the Rise of the Nazis. Uh, This is published by Pen and Sword, and you can also check out Mr. Clifford on the History's Most podcast. Alexander, how's it going today? Oh, it's going very well, and especially since I'm back on um, your podcast, Wesley, which uh, is an absolute pleasure, um, and I can't believe you've had me back, but here I am. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So let's just let's just dive right into the book, you know. Um, we're talking about Hindenburg, Ludendorff, Hitler, and kind of the, the rise of the Nazis to power, and so in that case, I feel like there's only one place that, that we can really start. And that's the stab in the back myth that that is such, you know, a foundational part of the Nazi kind of push to power and also heavily involves Hindenburg and Ludendorff. So can we just start kind of talking about that? So, you know, what is the stab in the back myth and kind of why do we call it a myth, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The stab in the back myth, the Dolstosh Legenda um, is is really central to understanding, I think, the way the Germans see or saw the First World War, um, the way the Nazi Party's worldview came into being, the way the German people in the interwar years accepted the Nazis' worldview, and indeed has a massive amount of relevance for the Second World War, um, particularly when you think about the Holocaust. And it's... Well, first of all, what it is very basically, and then kind of explore some of those points you've mentioned, Wesley. So the stab in the back myth, you know, 101 is the idea that Germany didn't lose the First World War. In fact, the army was betrayed by um, democratic politicians who wanted peace, by left-wing and communist revolutionaries who rose up in November 1918 and forced the Kaiser from power. And in general, as well, in its more virulent kind of anti-Semitic forms, you know, there's different variants of the stab in the back myth. Um, And in some of the more virulent uh, variants, there is this idea that either communism or kind of liberal democracy, or indeed both, are the product of the machinations of, of Jews. And that somehow beneath, you know, this, this idea of of the government seeking peace or the people rising up must be the workings of the Jews. Um, it is a myth, as you've mentioned, uh, Wesley. I mean, you did a fantastic podcast on the First World War, and I'm sure you covered the various reasons why Germany definitely did lose the First World War. Um, and indeed, when Hindenburg and Ludendorff ask the Kaiser 
for a peace and say it's, it's vital we seek an armistice in late September 1918, they make no mention of politicians or um, revolutionaries. In fact, there had been no revolution in Germany. So um, they purely cited military factors um, in, their, in their letters to the Kaiser. So it is a myth. Um, Germany definitely did lose the First World War. And once you accept that, you know, a lot of what goes on in Weimar Germany seems quite ridiculous because they spend so much time worrying about why they, you know, were betrayed somehow when, you know, they weren't. Anyway, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they were Germany's um, supreme commanders in the First World War, at least from 1916 onwards. They were also, you know, went far beyond just being the military commanders. Um, it has been called a silent dictatorship um, because they had influence over every aspect of, of German um, politics during their time as supreme commanders, you know, foreign policy, economic policy, mobilizing the home front. Even they could basically get rid of chancellors they didn't like. Um, so extremely powerful figures. And indeed, if you were to want any two individuals most responsible for Germany losing the war, you could do a lot worse than picking those two. So they have a motive, therefore, to shift responsibility. You know, no one wants to take the blame for, well, no one likes taking the blame for anything, right? But particularly something like losing a world war and the deaths of millions and the suffering of millions more. So there's ideas really from the get-go in Germany around betrayal. Um, it's, it's obviously a seismic event, both you know, the dual collapse of the monarchy and defeat in the First World War. And these two play a gigantic role in, in, in making this the dominant narrative. And the way they do that is twofold. Number one, um, writings. So Ludendorff has finished his memoirs already in February 1919, after being sacked at the end of October 1918. And it's about 270,000 words. So he kind of publishes that a few months later, and he's, you know, he's one of the first in with an explanation of what happened and why we lost the war. And his, his um, reasoning is exactly what I've kind of just described. At this time, when he's writing his, his memoirs, it's kind of dog whistle language. He talks about um, those peoples who throughout their history have you know, always destroyed and never constructed. It's an allusion to the Jews. Um, but probably his main target is, the dem is politicians, both democratic ones and the ones from the, the Kaiserreich, as being weak and um, indecisive and never really backing the military up. Um, the second way that these two really help get this, this myth off the ground and, and even more decisive than Ludendorff's memoirs is the fact that the new government uh, democratic regime in Germany calls, about a year after the armistice, calls an inquiry, a parliamentary inquiry to investigate the defeat in 1918 and kind of you know, get all the evidence on the table and think, decide who's to blame. And Ludendorff is called as a witness, um, but he refuses to attend unless accompanied by Hindenburg, his wartime partner. Um, the committee hadn't really wanted to call Hindenburg because Hindenburg was a national hero. And despite the loss in the war, was absolutely beloved by the people. 
So they didn't really want to put him up for questioning. Nevertheless, they, they came. It was a huge event, massive press coverage, both domestic and international. Huge crowds mobbed them on their way into the, um, into the hearing. Um, and when the committee tried to ask questions to Hindenburg, he just kind of contemptuously stared them down and was completely silent and then just took from his pocket a prepared statement that had been written by Ludendorff. So he ignored all the questioning. It was not a cross-examination. It was simply a kind of declaration of their position. And their position, of course, was that they had not lost the war and that everyone else was, in fact, to blame. The home front, the politicians, the revolutionaries. And in, a, in the kind of most famous phrase um, of, of that testimony that Hindenburg gave, um, he said that, you know, an English general even rightly says we were stabbed in the back. And, and that has been debunked, whatever. It's not true. But the point is, in front of the most public audience you can imagine, Germany's two most prominent military figures were coming out and saying, it wasn't a military defeat. We were betrayed. The good, solid core of the German army, they said, had remained faithful and solid to the end. So the reason this is so important, I would argue, is that what had been before a kind of conspiracy theory on the fringes of, of German politics is very much all of a sudden center stage. And the thing with you know, conspiracy theories is they're often um, you know, spouted by kind of fringe groups or people who are considered unreliable or don't have you know, the qualifications that one might expect. But here is Hindenburg, who not only is the most loved and respected probably individual in the country, he's also the country's leading general. He is the expert when it comes to military affairs. And the expert is saying the conspiracy theory is true. And that's what's so potent about Hindenburg and Ludendorff's intervention in the stab in the back myth. It's this, all of a sudden, this is true. What you've been told and you might have dismissed is fact, and you're being told it by people you trust. Um, and and the, the importance of that, I think, can't be over-exaggerated. Um, it means the stab in the back myth becomes the dominant, at the very least for the political right, the dominant narrative of what happened in the First World War. It means that you know conspiracy theories and ideas about betrayal and traitors just um, permeates the politics of the Weimar Republic, which leads to people accepting what do the Nazis say. The Nazis accept the stab in the back myth, obviously. And you can draw a direct line, um, I would certainly argue, between the idea that we lost the first war because of betrayal by Jews and communists to the second war isn't going very well. We must make sure we don't lose. And in fact, there are discussions by high-level Nazis in the Second World War on along these lines of, we must ensure that doesn't happen again. The home front can't be allowed to collapse. Therefore, we must take much more radical measures against the Jews with the obviously tragic consequences. It's, it's really interesting how Hindenburg and Ludendorff can be in the position that they were in the First World War and still come out of it as war heroes when you kind of, when you see a lot of the other military leaders around the world, you know, um, 
who participated in the war, even those on the winning side sometimes did not come out with necessarily, uh, I would say, super sort of rosy legacies even immediately after. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is is the reputation during the war was so heroic, so, um, you know, such a cult of personality, particularly around Hindenburg. Ludendorff was a bit more in the background, but Hindenburg very much was the front man of the German war effort. Um, you know, the subject of obviously propaganda, um, you know, portraits of him in, in, in millions of homes. Um, a Hindenburg Museum was opened in 1917, you know, genuine kind of hero worship. And, and probably a part of that is because the Kaiser was, you know, maybe not the best individual to have as your, as your war figurehead. Um, so Hindenburg very much filled that void. And he was like, at the very least portrayed as, and his, his, his physical image kind of lends itself as well to this idea of the very embodiment of Prussian duty and honor. And um, for that reason, because he had such a reputation, even after they lost the war, the Germans, you know, even the democratic politicians wouldn't, wouldn't attack Hindenburg. You know, he was just too, you know, too respected, too loved that you wouldn't dare say that, oh, Hindenburg lost us the war. Because, you know, I, I would, I would the, the way I would compare it, if, if your modern example would be the... Um, how a monarch, you know, I'm, I'm taking the, the British example here, the monarch is just viewed as like the embodiment of the nation and, and no one bar, you know, the very, the extreme left would dare criticise the sitting, you know, the queen today. Um, it would just be political poison. Um, so I think that's probably really why that hero reputation and the fact that no one would be willing, no one's actually willing to criticise is how he managed to come out somehow, of a cataclysmic defeat smelling of roses. When we look at Hindenburg's sort of course after the war, you know, you talk about how he's sort of in this unassailable position. And for, for several years, he, he doesn't really engage kind of directly in, in the Weimar politics. But then the 1925 presidential election happens. And he, he's a, a candidate, I guess you would say, in that election. And so, so we talk, can we talk about how, you know, he kind of gets engaged in politics and then sort of his role in the, that mid-1925 election? Absolutely, yeah. Um, he'd, as we said, come out of the war with a very strong reputation. He published his own memoirs, which he deliberately asked. He didn't write them. He asked a ghostwriter to write them. Um, but he asked the ghostwriter to make them really kind of easy to read, sentimental. Um, not technical like Ludendorff's 270,000 word tome, um, which again, you know, just does more to make him a more in broad based popular figure. Um, and incidentally leads to conspiracy theories getting onto the bookshelves of ordinary Germans, but that's our previous point. Um, he had been, there had been, there had supposed to have been a presidential election in 1920 and Hindenburg had been nominated by the two leading parties of the German right as their candidate. And he would have been a very potent candidate um, at that time. However, that election didn't go ahead because of political instability, um, in, in very large part caused by Ludendorff, actually. But um, he had more or less retired from public life, kept his head down um, through the early 20s. He, he was very clearly a figure on the nationalist right. You know, he, he often attended 
veterans rallies. He did a famous and quite inflammatory tour of East Prussia um, in the early 20s. Um, he was a patron of kind of right-wing veterans associations, this sort of thing. Um, in 1925, though, the sitting president, Friedrich Ebert, died, and so there, there had to be a presidential election. And the presidency was a very strong position in the Weimar Republic. Um, even though it was supposed to be a primarily parliamentary rather than presidential system, the president was supposed to kind of act as a counterweight to the parliament. It was his job to hire and fire the chancellor of Germany. He had various uh, emergency powers under the constitution that were quite ill-defined, basically leaving a lot open to interpretation. And when this presidential election rolled along, um, various kind of right-wing parties and organizations thought it's probably a good idea that we try and win the presidency. We can shape the republic, uh, maybe even do away with it if we capture the presidency. Um, and in, it was a, a strange kind of two-round electoral system where in the first round, if anyone won a majority of votes cast, 50% plus one, they were automatically elected president. But because that was highly unlikely in a very diverse party field, um, there would then be a second round where it was simply whoever got the most votes would win. And in the first round, the rights kind of united candidate um, topped the poll, but he was a long way short of that 50%. And it was very clear that he wouldn't win in the second round. So at that point, the German Nationalist Party, the DNVP, comes knocking on Hindenburg's door and says, for obvious reasons, because of his reputation, we would very much like you to come along as, pres uh, as our presidential candidate. Hindenburg kind of, it takes a few weeks um, to get him on board. And he's very much giving the image off as the kind of reluctant old man. He's 77 at this point, um, and it's a seven-year term. So, um, you know, and it very much plays into what I'm trying to say is I don't think it's necessarily entirely all honest on his part, because he had been called out of retirement at the start of the First World War. Um, when he was in his 60s. And so I think this calling him out of retirement to kind of save the nation in its hour of need is a very deliberate play on his previous mythology of being called out of retirement to save the nation. And, you know, we know he was elected president and probably our listeners can kind of guess some of the reasons based on what I've been saying. He didn't campaign. He said, I won't travel and I won't speak. That was one of his conditions laid down, which is remarkable, really, isn't it? A, for running for an office, and B, to be suitable to occupy one. Um, but he didn't need to run. He's the most well-known, I would, I would undoubtedly say, the, the single most well-known man in the country, and one who had an amazing reputation. And the opposition was tying itself in knots, trying to oppose him without criticizing or in any way trying to disrespect um, Field Marshal Hindenburg, the national hero. So whilst the, you know, the right-wing campaign could basically say he's the father of the nation, he is bipartisan, he is duty and honor embodied, um, and also hint, hint to our supporters, he could get rid of the republic because, you know, He's got good nationalist credentials. Um, the, the, the opposition 
was really kind of struggling and they're there leaflets and posters and articles are kind of comic to read because it's kind of like oh you know give hindenburg what he wants vote for the opposition because he's, he's an old man he doesn't want to be disturbed in his retirement leave him in peace um and you know things like you know, our opponents are not hindenburg it's it's the people behind hindenburg which you can understand just it ended up being ineffective and hindenburg um, won the election um, quite comfortably and was, you know, really able to attract people who wouldn't have voted for the right-wing candidate, you know, able to attract um, people who are maybe moderates or on the centre-right, able to attract um, Catholics who hadn't wanted to support the Protestant um, previous candidate. So, yes, um, Hindenburg's intervention in 1925 is, is crucial, I would argue, to winning the presidency for the right. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you kind of, uh, we've been talking about Hindenburg and his kind of position within German society at this point. Uh, one of the challenges I've had, speaking, you know, from a podcasting perspective over the years, is trying to, like, explain the role that, that somebody like Hindenburg plays in post-war German society. Or I kind of compare it also to maybe like a, a Field Marshal Kitchener before the war in British society, because in the modern era, we don't it's very different. Like, like there's not like a modern comparison that, that is easy to make, uh, that where that, that has kind of cr the credentials of these men, uh, like Hindenburg coming off of the first world war. And then also like, just like the, the media and news industry is very different at the time. And so, so there is like this, the person that nobody can really it's much more deferential. Exactly. Like they, they right. can't criticize directly. And so it's very challenging. It's a very kind of interesting dynamic when you look at, you know, the, the that election and, and what happens after for Hindenburg while he's in office. 
I mean, yeah, I, th- I totally agree. It's fascinating. It's, like I say, unparalleled, as you say, probably in today's society. And that's kind of why I wanted to write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Hindenburg, man of, of uh, whether he not he deserved it or not, great sort of deference and great sort of standing within society. He continues that for a very long time. And on the other side, the other person that we're here to talk about today, or one of the other people, is Ludendorff, who takes... Uh, maybe the exact opposite sort of path <laughs> after the war. So, so let's let's look at Ludendorff's path sort of after 1918 and after he fires off his memoirs in early 1919. Absolutely, yeah. Ludendorff, if Hindenburg is kind of like this uh, bipartisan figure, Ludendorff is, is as partisan as you can get. Um, he, one thing to note is that at the end of the First World War, he'd had the very least a nervous breakdown. Um, if you believe his wife, um, when he was sacked um, from his post in October 1918, he apparently sat at his desk, staring straight ahead, mumbling to himself for days on end. Um, he, he was not a well man. The extent to which he recovered mentally um, over the coming decades is open for debate, um, and it's probably impossible to, to say what someone's mental health exactly was like. Um, however, almost um, as soon as he's, he's finished writing his memoirs, he's back from a very brief spell in Sweden, a uh, kind of self-imposed exile. He begins be- to be involved in plots um, against the new democracy in Germany. Um, he is a leading light behind the Cap Putsch of 1920, where he kind of comically claims that he was just out for a morning stroll and happened to bump into a column of soldiers marching into Berlin and so marched at their head, naturally. Um, it's, it's total nonsense. He, he was a main, one of the main conspirators um, that were seeking to create some sort of, they didn't really define it very clearly, but there's some sort of right-wing regime um, to replace the Democratic Republic. That ended in failure, and Ludendorff fled um, Berlin for Bavaria, um, South um, German state, um, very traditionalist and right-wing. And Germany um, was a federal, uh, still is a federal country with very strong regional government. And so because there was a kind of right-wing nationalist government in Bavaria, they kind of welcomed Ludendorff with open arms, and indeed other people who, um, quite frankly, were terrorists um, who operated out of Munich with impunity across the rest of Germany. Um, so Bavaria and Munich, in particular, were like a greenhouse for the far right in the early 1920s. I would argue, and that's where the Nazi movement is born, and you know grows in its early years. So Ludendorff's this kind of elder statesman of the far right. He'd had links to the far right even before the First World War. And because of his wartime reputation, he's not quite like Hindenburg. He, he was never as well-known or loved, and also he got more of the blame. If Hindenburg didn't get any blame, Ludendorff certainly did get some of the blame. Um, one politician after the war said that it's fashionable to piss on Ludendorff as in everyone who wants to blame someone for the world, oh, it was Ludendorff's fault. Um, 
Now, when he's um, in Bavaria, he comes into contact with these far-right groups. Um, he begins, in his own words, to investigate the Jewish question. Um, he is in this, almost, I would argue, like an echo chamber, really, in that he's holding court, with, and all the kind of leading far-right figures of the region are coming to see him, having discussions. And, of course, one of those people in the early 1920s in kind of regional Bavarian politics, one of the rising stars is Adolf Hitler. And they uh, meet, they come acquainted, and they're each quite impressed with the other, and they've each got uses for the other. Obviously for Hitler, he's a bit of a nobody in the early 20s, and meeting General Ludendorff is, you know, instantly conferring on him a bit of prestige. It's bringing some notoriety to the early Nazi movement. Ludendorff was able to secure quite a large sum of money for Hitler's Nazi party, which was obviously very important for a, for a burgeoning political party. And it gives him some clout, being someone who, who has the ear of Ludendorff. On the other hand, for Ludendorff, this is also a kind of, I guess it's this kind of symbiotic relationship, because for Ludendorff, he's impressed by Hitler, as many people who met him were. Um, he obviously shares quite a lot of his, his politics and his worldview. And Ludendorff, for everything that he has, and he has undoubted talents, um, he's not a great public speaker, and he's not a politician. And here is someone who can help him, who does both. And so for Ludendorff, his aspiration, and he's made very, he makes it very clear in his writings, implicitly clear, I would say, in his writings in the early 20s, that he basically thinks he could have won the war if he'd been given the total leadership and that he aspires to one day be basically dictator of Germany. Um, for Ludendorff, Hitler and the Nazi party is, is a vehicle that can help him get onto that um, path. And we come then, I guess, to the, to the Beer Hall Putsch, the Munich Putsch, infamous event in November 1923, which I, I find quite frustrating in the way it's portrayed written about probably more in documentaries than books by proper historians. But nevertheless, Ludendorff's kind of seen as almost like a passenger, someone who comes along for the ride, someone that Nazis recruit at the last minute to give them some prestige. No, that's not the case at all. They, Ludendorff and Hitler had been building a movement, a, a large paramilitary and political organization of which Ludendorff was the military head and Hitler was the political head, called the Kampfbund for some time. And the Beer Hall Putsch is inconceivable without Ludendorff. There's no way that in 1923, Adolf Hitler thought that he had the national standing to seize power. He was virtually unknown outside of Bavaria. Um, with Ludendorff at the head of, of the coup attempt, though, they believed they would be able to attract nationalists from across the country. They believed that the German army would stand by, behind them, you know, in a way, they just wouldn't have stood behind Lance Corporal Hitler. Um, and Ludendorff's role in the putsch is, is, is catastrophically bad, but it is central. Um, he is, they all defer to him as the leader. He's the one who comes down um, and turns thing around, things around in the actual beer hall uh, um, on the night of the 8th of November when the Bavarian um, government are basically not listening to Hitler. And then Ludendorff turns up and says, right, you're all signing up for this coup. 
Um, it's happened now, was his argument, basically. It's happening, so you may as well get on board. Um, incidentally, um, Ludendorff uh, turned up for the putsch in a tweed suit and felt hat because um, his defense in court later would be that he didn't realize a putsch was happening. He just went down to a beer hall. He thought it was just a, a nice drinks event, and he just got swept along in the in the event that he had been planning for months. Um, anyway. Um, He's just he always met- in the right place at the right time. <laughs> yes. It's funny how um, it works. Yeah. And talking of that kind of deferential age, it's it's a defense that, although totally ridiculous, is accepted by the judiciary of the age um, because of his standing. Ludendorff also makes the crucial decision um, to release the Bavarian government leaders um, because he has their word of honor and the word of a German officer is, is in his mind, unbreakable, despite the fact he's lied so many times in his post-war career. But regardless, um, he decides that everyone should go to the war ministry where they waste the early hours of the morning. He decides after that that they should do a march through the city centre, which ends in bloodshed, and he's arrested and put on trial. And although Hitler comes out of the trial very well um, as a great public speaker, Ludendorff kind of looks ridiculous. His defence is ridiculous. He goes on um, rants about the Catholic Church as some sort of global conspiracy, which is seen as ridiculous. and He's somewhat um, discredited. And actually, the, the 1925 presidential election we mentioned, Ludendorff runs in the first round as the Nazi candidate and gets 1.1% of the vote. So any hopes that he may have had of achieving leadership, and he definitely did hope to achieve a leadership position in the far-right movement in general and the Nazi party specifically, um, those aspirations are more or less brought to an end in kind of 1925. I found it really interesting that you brought up kind of Ludendorff's uh, position within the planning for the Beer Hall push and how that is covered uh, often. I think it's it's one of those examples maybe of how even even if people don't mean to or you know have the best of intentions like the like Nazi propaganda can kind of find its way into uh, other histories uh, quite often because of how they want to portray events after the beer hall push. Like, you know, they, they don't want Ludendorff to have a big role in it. They want Hitler to be kind of the, the lead figure and, and even find somebody else to blame the failure on. But Hitler was doing the right thing, uh, according to, to the Nazis. And so it's, it's a really good example, I think, of that kind of happening uh, with history, where sometimes propaganda of, of various groups can kind of seep its way into to a lot of how certain events are portrayed. And funnily enough, actually, exactly the same um, from Ludendorff's perspective of propaganda, I think, seeping into the history of the event. Because after he splits with the Nazis, he kind of creates his own cult with his, his second wife, Matilda. Um, and their cult is an even more extreme far-right vision than the Nazi party that basically sees even Christianity is part of the Jewish conspiracy to destroy Germany. And they have a kind of semi-pagan faith. And their cult uh, survives the Nazis, actually, um, into the post-war era. And I, I think, I'm fairly confident that some of their attempts to exonerate Ludendorff and the kind of Ludendorff's own farcical defense at the time in 1923-24 
has actually seeped into the history in that he's then given much less of a prominent role in accounts of the Beer Hall Putsch. Interesting. So um, I guess that influence can come from a variety of directions when you're talking about these kind of events. Um, so, so you mentioned, you know, 1925, presidential election. Uh, Ludendorff is kind of, uh, a- after that, he's kind of off the political stage. And then he takes some views that even in Germany at its most, you know, radical at this point is probably not willing to sort of not able to get a big following on. So. You know, they, they, these two men, Hindenburg, Ludendorff, took very different sort of paths after 1925. But Hindenburg kind of stays within the German political picture for the next, what is it, eight years, I guess, as, as president? Yes. Um, while Ludendorff kind of fades into the background um, and, and descends into a very strange and idiosyncratic world of conspiracy theories that, as you say, even the Nazis considered to be. Um, too extreme. Hindenburg is is very much front and center. He is, you know, the head of state. Um, The president is supposed to be more kind of hands-off for most of the time. And for the first few years, he very much is. Um, He's more kind of, like we've said before, he's like a figurehead, a father of the nation. And being head of state just um, buttresses that reputation, right? Because he's on the currency, he's on the stamps. His um, birthday is a public celebration. Um, his 80th birthday in 1927 is a massive event. Um, you get, it's almost ridiculous, the level of hero worship. You know, you get newspaper articles that kind of say that he's like a gift from God that has come for the deliverance of the German people. Um there's a huge firework display in, I think it's in Cologne, but I might be wrong about that, um, where fireworks uh, display explode to create the outline of his very distinctive head. Um, there is um, huge, huge public celebrations, um, thousands and thousands of people lining the streets. And at the same time, the Hindenburg myth is is continued. And actually, the presidential office plays an active role in curating it. You know, they get authors to send them their manuscripts on books about the First World War, and they edit them and make sure that everything's, you know, as Hindenburg would want it. Um, There's films made about Hindenburg's life, um, documentaries and dramas. Um, And again, president's office actually plays an active role with the filmmakers in ensuring that it portrays the proper image. And all this is well and good in the kind of mid-20s when, relatively speaking, Weimar Germany is fairly stable and prosperous. Even then, Hindenburg was kind of pushing the line of, of constitutionalism once or twice, but where it really changes is, is with the onset of the Great Depression from 1929 onwards. Because for some time, Hindenburg's inner circle, which is almost invariably army officers, because (laughs) of who he is, um, are kind of pushing and saying, look, if you interpret the Constitution a certain way, we can have governments that are reliant not on the parliament and the whims of um, politicians and the electorate, but governments that rely on the authority and the legitimacy of the president instead. 
and they will be more stable. They'll be um, obviously more to the liking of Hindenburg and his, his inner circle. And those governments will be able to rule with a firmer hand because the president has the power to rule by decree in states of emergency. Although um, the times of crisis or emergency that the decree rules may be used are not actually defined in the constitution. So more or less whenever he wants. Um, so with the situation looking increasingly bleak in the spring of 1930, um, Hindenburg, as he basically does at every key point in crisis point in his career, abandons his closest collaborator, his chancellor, um, usually accompanied with tears, um, which is, I always find quite comic for a man who's got such a stoic reputation. At every kind of crucial moment of his life, he breaks down in tears. Whether it's an act or not, I don't know. But when he asks the Kaiser to abdicate, he, he cries so much he can't speak. Um, uh, when he sacks various chancellors, as I've said, he, he kind of goes, you know, oh, you know, I'm so sorry or, or whatever. But anyway, in the spring of 1930, they, these Hindenburg and his circle make their move. They create what's billed at the time as the Hindenburg cabinet, which is uh, a very, you know, they very much define it this way. It's a presidential government rather than a parliamentary one. So it's um, his kind of personal pick of a chancellor, Heinrich Brüning, multiple Iron Cross winner, um, and a cabinet of ministers. And by the way, having an Iron Cross seems to have been a big advantage if you wanted a post in this government. It seems to have been near on compulsory, um, which maybe, again, isn't so surprising for, for, for Field Marshal Hindenburg. But they've got this kind of right-wing government, and they hope it's going to steer the republic in a more stable direction, perhaps a more kind of semi-authoritarian direction as well. It's also going to try and see the country through the Depression. Um, and this means, at least for, for these, this government, it means severe um, cuts in public spending, um, reduction in unemployment protection which leads to massive material suffering and the depression actually deepening in Germany. Um, there's a big debate about whether or not they deliberately did that to try and get reparations annulled um, or not. But that, that's perhaps by the by. Another interesting side note, perhaps, the military budget was actually increased during these years, um, whereas everything else was cut. But anyway, we get to kind of um, early 1932. And the Nazis, thanks to the Depression, various other factors that we can talk about for the rise of the Nazis, but the Nazis are in a position where they are um, the coming force in German politics. And Hindenburg is increasingly wanting, and he has done for some time, a united government of the right under his leadership. He's actually pushed since the elections of 1930 for Hitler to be invited into the cabinet. Um, not as chancellor, because the role of chancellor is for a, you know, a proper upstanding aristocrat, um, you know, not some jumped up Austrian lance corporal. But you know, it, it, it would be a mistake to view Hindenburg as, as in any way anti-Nazi. Um, he, he thinks the Nazis you know, are a bit rowdy, a bit uppity, but that they would fit into his cabinet nicely. They, they are thoroughly as he would probably put it, national in the sense of basically nationalistic um, and patriotic. 
1932, there's an absolutely fascinating, well, there's about five elections, um, but there's an absolutely fascinating presidential election um, in which it's basically Field Marshal versus Lance Corporal, Hitler versus Hindenburg. And no one ever talks about this election, I think, because Hitler loses. So it doesn't fit nicely into our narrative of, of Hitler's rise to power, which has to be a nice straight line. Um, but it's an absolutely fascinating election because it's, it's 1925 in reverse. So the right basically abandons Hindenburg, despite the fact he still considers himself the leader of the nationalist right. And instead, Hindenburg is the candidate of the Social Democrats, the Catholic Center Party, um, liberals, uh, anti-Nazis, basically, whereas Hitler has captured um, the majority of Germany's right-wing voters. Um, And yes, Hindenburg wins. And I would argue probably no other single individual could have beaten Hitler at that precise moment in time. And he gets, uh, in the second round, over 50% of the vote, which is remarkable for so divided and fractured a political um, spectrum. But he does not behave like someone who's just won an election. Um, He is very angry about the fact that his people, as he called them, um, had abandoned him. And the fact the right-wing press is now criticizing him, you know. um, And it was very interesting because just as in 1925, people kind of try and separate Hindenburg out from the forces behind Hindenburg, same thing in 1932. People kind of the Nazis are very cautious not to directly criticize Hindenburg or attack him. It's more kind of, um, well, he's you know 84 years old. Um, people are manipulating him. There's Jesuits who sign his document, you know, guide his hand as he's signing documents. Um, there's kind of malicious rumors about his son being. Um, a secret social democrat, which he definitely wasn't. Um, his daughters were apparently in the communist youth organization, even though they're in their 50s. Um, there's even rumors that Hindenburg's actually dead and that, um, you know, it's all just a front for the, for the conspiracy. Um, but the Hindenburg brand survives all of that and it comes out, you know, victorious once again. He, and again, I think there's many people who would have voted Hindenburg in 1932, which would never have voted for the parties that supported Hindenburg. It's just his personal brand is absolutely um, bulletproof, despite you know the Depression, despite the rise of the Nazis, despite everything. Um, people write letters to Hindenburg when he's given his radio address to say, you know, I was so emotionally moved by it, I cancelled my plans for the evening. Or, you know, I watched, I listened to your radio broadcast whilst sitting in front of my portrait of you in my living room. Um, there's one particular piece of fan mail that compares him to literally to Jesus Christ, because like Jesus, Hindenburg has been pilloried by his own, you know, his own kind. Um, but in the end, he will kind of deliver the, the faithful. But. <laughs> Despite all of that, despite that magnificent defeat of the Nazis in the spring of 32, the issue is Hindenburg's objective from that point is not, why don't I unite the forces who supported me, the kind of moderate left through to the moderate right, which he could conceivably have done, um, but I need to win back my right-wing credentials. I need to prove I am a real German nationalist. So he basically begins to agitate for a change of government, a more right-wing government, 
which he gets in uh, May, June with Franz von Papen, who's um, a clown, but actually ends up being Hindenburg's favorite chancellor because unlike boring details and things like that, he just kind of says nice things to him and, and talks about the war. Um, so you get um, Franz von Papen's government and they basically box themselves into a corner. They put themselves in a position that, that cannot be resolved with any any in an in, 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 a, in a peaceful manner um, because they call an election in exchange for Nazi support. The Nazis obviously do very well in that election, but then the Nazis renege their promise to support the government. Surprise, surprise! Hitler breaking a promise, um, and that leaves Hindenburg and his cronies. In, a, in an invidious position, because you can either bring the Nazis in to the administration, but Hitler demands the chancellorship, he'll accept nothing less. Or you forget the Reichstag, because the Nazis now have a, a negative majority with the communists, you can't pass any laws, you can't even pass any presidential decrees, because you can overturn decrees in the Reichstag. So either you bring the Nazis in and you end that opposition, or you basically have to suspend the Reichstag and create some sort of temporary emergency dictatorship, which is going to mean you're going to have to suppress the Nazi movement by force because they'll never accept being denied power in that manner. You're basically going to have to have a showdown between Nazis and anti-Nazis, of which Hindenburg is going to have to be in the anti-Nazi camp, which he doesn't really want to be. <laughs> you know, um, As I've said, he's not really got that much of a problem with the Nazis. And it's a very long, complex story, but I think you know you can kind of see where it's going in the sense that Hindenburg was very, very reluctant to go down the martial law kind of dictatorship approach because it was fraught with danger. It would in very much probably risk something akin to civil war. So the safe option, and indeed the option he preferred anyway, would be to bring the Nazis into the administration. And that's what happens in January 33. He is reluctant to give Hitler the chancellorship because he's Hitler and he is an Austrian lance corporal. But in the end, it's a price worth paying from Hindenburg's point of view. Um, and from that point on, Hindenburg behaves, I would say, like a man who's completed his mission. Like he has delivered the unified right-wing government he's wanted for years. Admittedly, that unity is very much temporary, and the Nazis move quickly to eliminate all other right-wing forces or, or, or incorporate them. I would say, I, technically, they're unified after that through force? <laughs> exactly, yes. And that technical unification appears to be enough for Hindenburg. He, he, he never objects to these moves that, that Hitler makes in his first few months to consolidate his power. He doesn't object when the party he claims he's always supported the DNVP, the German Nationalist Party, is banned. He, never, he doesn't write a letter of complaint. He doesn't raise it with the Chancellor. He never raises any objections. In fact, the only two objections he ever raises to Hitler once he's in power is he kind of ticks him off a bit about um, a speech that, that Hitler gave that was highly critical of Hindenburg's predecessor, Friedrich Ebert, and he basically says, Ebert was a patriotic man. Don't have a go at him. And he asks in the uh, law, the civil service laws that ban Jews and communists from having 
uh, holding civil service posts, he asks that Jewish war veterans be excused. And I think that's important because he doesn't ask that, he doesn't say it's wrong. He doesn't ask for Jews to be excused. He says, well, if they fought for me in the war, they're all right. And actually, in a private letter, he defends this law as saying, you know, the Jews have been really mean to the Nazis for years. It's only fair and natural that the Nazis are going to strike back at them. Um, and that's his way of, of seeing it. He isn't, you know, a Nazi per se, but he doesn't particularly object to what they're doing. Um, and he's never been a fan of the Weimar Republic. So he, has, he sheds no tears about the dismantling of democracy. And he's perfectly willing, once he's got his way on certain things, once he's got certain cabinet ministers that he wants in the cabinet, who, by the way, stick around often till the 40s, some of them even to 1945, um, he's, he's pretty much content to let Hitler go on. He's even happy when Hitler passes the Enabling Act in March 1933 that strips Hindenburg actually of that decree power and gives Hitler the power to rule by decree. Hindenburg is delighted at that law because he says, I won't have to be a signature machine anymore. I won't be constantly asked to sign unpopular decrees all the time. Great. And, and, and it's often portrayed, and again, I'll go back to some popular portrayal here, again, not necessarily by the top historians, but I think it is a common perception that Hindenburg somehow is senile or deranged or he doesn't know what's happening in 1933 he he doesn't know what's going on and there's that thing that when he sees the march of the brown shirts he thinks it's russian prisoners of war which was a joke it was a joke told at the time there's no evidence that actually happened and more crucially there's absolutely no evidence that hindenburg was senile or in any way mentally incapacitated um he was certainly physically frail he was, you know, 86 years old, but there's no evidence that he, he was um, not in his right mind when he made Hitler Chancellor. And rather, the fact that it took him months to persuade him suggests that actually he, he wasn't mentally weak. He wasn't just not knowing what's going on. It took him quite a while to warm up to the idea that Hitler could be Chancellor. Um, and that resistance speaks to the idea that he, he did know what the implications were, at least you know, some of them. Um, and he, at the very end of his life, undoubtedly, he, he definitely faded. But before he got to that point, he wrote a political last will and testament, of which there was a secret portion to be given to, the, to Hitler on, on, on Hindenburg's death. And what it said was, it would be quite nice if we restore the monarchy at some point, but I'll leave that up to you. You're my designated heir and successor. So this is not someone who was a barrier to the Nazis. He's not someone that was, um, you know, he's often portrayed as like this bulwark of, of the Republic that was resisting right up to the end. I'm afraid that the facts just don't marry up um, with that view. And he really was somebody who willingly put people who were known to be murderers, racists, thugs, into power. 